Our text this evening comes to us from Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. We are heading towards the end of Passion Week here in the Gospel of Luke. Before we go to our text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we need truth this evening to transform our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that we would no longer be conformed to the ways of this world, but transformed through the renewing of our minds. Father, help us now to understand your word, to apply your word, and your word, would it then indeed, through the power of your Holy Spirit, convict and convert sinners in our midst and grow them up and grow us up into holiness by your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Luke 22 Verses 24 through 28, we're in the upper room. Uh, Jesus has just had the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And here these conversations take place. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Thanks be to God for his holy and errant and therefore authoritative word. Just days after 9-11 when those two towers fell in New York City and thousands lost their lives, President George W. Bush went to ground zero and he went to encourage, comfort, console those first aid workers who had been there hour after hour after hour. Many of them had not slept since the incident, pulling bodies out of the rubble, pulling the injured out of the rubble, trying to find those who might still be alive. And he grabbed a bullhorn that a fireman was using and he began to speak to the crowd, but the crowd yelled back, we can't hear you. 
And so he spoke again and they said, we can't hear you. And so he tried to work through whatever he wanted to say again to comfort the group again. And they once again yelled out, we can't hear you. And finally he stopped what he was trying to say and said, well, I can hear you. And the rest of the world hears you. And soon those who knock these buildings down will hear you also. And the crowd screamed. What he was saying was, there's, there's a lot that I could say to you right now. What do you say to people who've gone through the grief that you've gone through? How do I comfort you in the midst of this moment? What, what do you need to learn and need to know? But for now, listen up. Here's what I need to say to you. It's not a lot. It's a little. But it's of utmost importance. And it's a bit like the atmosphere of this passage here. Jesus is about to go to Gethsemane and pray. And then he'll be betrayed and crucified. Arrested and crucified. These are his last words before all of those events happen. What does he want his disciples to know before he goes to his death for them? He wants them to experience four things beyond the fact that he has already said, I've earnestly desired to eat this meal with you, which he has done and taught them about the meaning of the Passover, now the Lord's Supper. He says, there's four things that you need to know. First, there's a betrayer in our midst and I will be betrayed. And, and Squires talked about that last week. Secondly, you need to know how to lead. Thirdly, you need to know how to stand. And fourthly, you need to know how to fight. I'm going and it's just gonna be you. You need to know how to lead, how to stand and how to fight. And those will be our headings this evening as we think about this passage together. First, how to lead, verses 24 through 30. There's a dispute that rose up amongst them. They're in the midst of the king. He's just broken bread with them. John's gospel tells us he has taken off his outer garment and he served them by washing their feet. And now there's a dispute that's rose up amongst them as to which of them will be regarded as the greatest. Typical dispute when someone has just washed your feet and said they're going to give their life as a ransom for you. It's a dispute that you know very well. If you have a family, if you have young children, every time you've ever taken your family anywhere in your car, you've experienced this dispute. It's called shotgun. Who will ride in the front seat to wherever you're going? Why is it so great to ride in the front seat? No one in history knows. But there's an argument every time you've ever gotten your car and whoever calls shotgun gets the front seat, except it doesn't actually work that way because they'll still argue over who gets the front seat. And evidently, it's as old as the gospel because they're literally jockeying for seating. Probably the custom at the time was they're sitting here now on the floor, they're reclining at table, they've taken the Lord's Supper. But whoever sat closest to the man of honor was most important and whoever sat furthest away was least important they've been together for three years but it but it feels like things are getting close it's glory time Jesus has said he's king he's about to stomp out the Roman Empire and I want to be sitting close to him when he does it I want to be elevated to the stature of his right-hand man or the second to the right-hand man. In fact, John's gospel has told us that John and James and their mother have even gone and jockeyed for position. Could you let one of them sit right next to you? This is a problem, an ongoing problem with the disciples. He's said to them regularly he's going to die, but they've got, they've got the triumphal entry perhaps in their mind. 
They don't want anything of a dying Savior. They want the Savior that came in and everyone laid down their cloaks and he rode in like a humble king and they worshiped him and they adored him. They're thinking there's a leadership opportunity ahead and they jockey like teens for the front seat. Literally, they're fighting. There's a dispute that's rose up amongst them and Jesus does what he regularly does and as he witnesses this childish dispute, he redirects the conversation. He says, you know, you know what the Gentiles are like? You know how the Gentiles love titles? They're kings and they're authority figures. They love titles and they expect to be followed and they love to be followed and praised and admired. It's the normal way of the world then. It's the normal way of the world now that leadership means I'm ahead and you're behind. I'm on top of the rung and you're down below. It means I get to tell you what to do. I get to sit at the head of the table or next to the head of the table. I get to earn the service of others. I demand and you do and I get the credit. Not much has changed in leadership. That's what leadership was then. That's what leadership is now. There's things that are beneath me. There's things that are menial. I got to a certain position and I don't do that anymore. That's a young man's game. That's for the grunts. That's for those who need to actually serve me. And we might not say it out loud, but we often live that way, don't we? Have you ever been around a leader like that? It's not very encouraging. Ever been a leader like that? The Gentiles, they Gentiles. This is what Gentiles do then. This is what Gentiles do now. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God flips everything on its head. Leadership's different in the kingdom of God. The greatest should actually become like the youngest. The greatest in this culture would have been the older and they would have been the most respected and received the most authority and they got to an age now where they didn't have to do the menial tasks. The youngest did the menial tasks. They did the things that were the grunt work and Jesus is actually saying, be like the grunt. In the kingdom of God, nothing is too menial for you. Serve and serve and serve some more. In fact, let me picture it for you. I'll take off my outer garment and I'll wash your feet. And it was so repulsive to them and so beneath them and so beneath what they thought of their king that Peter would say, no, please don't wash my feet. And Jesus would say, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. He's saying, if, if you don't become like a servant, you, you have no place in this kingdom. And oh, I'll be humiliated way worse than this. I'm gonna go to the cross. I'm gonna hang there naked for six hours on a trash heap outside of town. That's how far I'll go for you. That's what leadership looks like in the kingdom. And these apostles are about to be leaders in the kingdom. Jesus is going away and they will lead the early church and they need to know that leadership in the church looks different than leadership in the world. He's taught them for three years and they're still playing shotgun. And I would have been tempted to think to myself, you guys are hopeless. I can't believe how many times have we talked about this? How many times have we gone over this? How many times have I spoken and then showed you what it actually looks like to lead by service in the kingdom of God? And yet what Jesus does is he actually fills them with hope. In verses 28 through 30, he says, you are those who stayed with me. And I would have said, you guys have been with me. You bunch of yahoos, I can't believe you don't get this. We're still, you guys just still got another dispute about who gets to sit next to me. This is ridiculous. And Jesus says, you know what you guys are? You're my brothers. 
you're my friends. You've stayed with me this whole time. Everybody else has left. And one of you is about to leave and the other 11 have stayed here. You've stayed with me this whole time. You're the ones that have stayed with me. In fact, you're going to have a kingdom. You don't have to jockey for it here. You're gonna have one in heaven and you're gonna feast with me again like this supper, but in glory, not only so, but there's something special for you 11 and then the 12 Matthias that will be added in Acts. There's something special for you and that is that you will have 12 thrones and you will judge Israel. So you don't have to get all clamored up and worked up about what it looks like now to be on the side of leadership and be on the side of glory. You're going to glory, it's coming for you and instead of rebuking them, he comforts them with hope. And it says, Dr. Davis says, there's just simply no meanness in Jesus. He loves his disciples. He's so gracious and patient time and time and time again. Are we that way with our disciples, with our children, with our family members, with our foundry partners, with people that we pour into in the church, with our employees? What does it look like for us to serve in this way? He's so gracious that he says, leadership looks like service, and I'm gonna serve and serve and serve, no matter the patience it requires, no matter the blood, sweat, and tears it requires, no matter the humiliation that it costs me, because leadership always costs. It costs time. I often tell our elders when they get on a committee that I'm on and something hard comes up, I said, and, and they say, man, this is tough. And I say, no, somebody didn't tell you it was gonna be easy, did they? Leadership's hard, it's costly. It costs your time when you think you don't have any more to give. It costs your talents, the gifts, the abilities that God's given you when you think you can't keep pouring out. It costs your tithe, your resources, when you think how on earth could I give and give and give until it hurts and God says, keep doing it because that's leadership in the kingdom. It's going down, it's serving even to humiliation. And the first question for us is, do you know this kind of king? Has there ever been a king like this in all of human history? Who says, I'm not among you as one who is to be served, but as one who serves. In fact, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom to many. And if you do know that kind of king, have you been with him enough that he's starting to mold you to become more like him, that you might love others this way? And if not, would you ask him for his help? that we might be a body, if there's no other body in Columbia, if there's no other group of people in Columbia, that we might be that body, that we might be that group that is identified by our love for others in the way that we serve. Starting with the household of faith and then working beyond. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going away and you need to know how to lead, it's through serving. Secondly, you need to know how to stand. You need to know how to stand here in verses 31 through 34. And standing is related to leadership here in a sense. He says, Satan has come and he has demanded to sift you like wheat. And the you here is plural. All of you, you, you apostles. Satan wants to sift you apostles like wheat. I don't know much about sifting wheat. I spent way too many moments this week trying to figure out what in the world it means to sift wheat. 
I wish I could really explain to you what it means to sift wheat, but I'm just a lowly peasant and I can't quite figure it out. But I think it has something to do with breaking the wheat apart. We'll go with that. There were threshing floors in Israel and it was a a circular block and an oxen or a donkey would be on it and there would be a rope tied to that oxen or donkey and there'd be a piece of wood and the, the, the animal would go around the wheat on the ground and as they did, it would crush it and you're trying to get the grain out and then they would throw it up in the air and the chaff would blow away. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually really, really easy to do. If you take a piece of wheat and you do this, you can get to the grain and the chaff flies away. It's one of the easiest things to do in human history and that's the point. Jesus says, It's an easy thing for Satan to pick you apart. It's an easy thing for him to tear you to pieces. And he's asked that he would sift you disciples, you people who have been with me for three years. He's asked that he would sift you like wheat and it would be nothing for him to do it if you relied upon your own strength. Nothing. Because he's crafty and he knows you. And he knows when there will be an opportune time for you. He's actually waiting for an opportune time for Christ when he's hanging upon the cross. And he has to be sober-minded to defeat Satan by resisting his temptation. But it's nothing for him to destroy you. And that's the point. And then the focus narrows here to Peter. And he says, Peter, I have prayed for you. Four times from 32 onward, Now the you is not plural, but it's singular because Peter is the first among equals. He is the representative of the other disciples and he is the one that will be honed in on by Satan. He is the one here honed in on by Christ. Satan wants to strike the head, Jesus the captain, and strike the right hand lieutenant and if he does, everybody else will scatter. And Peter is just confident enough and his own strength to be the perfect target, isn't he? Peter is the one who says in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Ain't no way Satan's taking me out. I'll go to jail with you. I'll die with you. Peter never lacked for confidence. He was always the one to speak up when Jesus asked the question. He was always the first one to have the answer. Anytime there was a situation that arose where there was an answer needed, he was not afraid of anybody. And beyond that, he had left his family, he'd left his friends, he'd left a lucrative fishing industry to follow Jesus. He's brave, he's confident, he's deserving, he's not scared. His name's been changed to the rock. He's a winner. He can stand against anybody. And that's exactly why he's the perfect target. Because he's apt to rely upon his own strength. He's apt to believe that he can do it on his own. And Jesus says, you know, before the rooster crows, you're going to be taken apart by two little servant girls and a relative of a priest whose ear you cut off. You're an easy target. You know, I'm amazed today by the way in which pride has become a respectable sin. That we actually adore pride. We think it's a great trait to boast about ourselves and our abilities and our gifts and how we're gonna crush it and kill it and get it done. We, we think to ourselves, I deserve my way. I've earned my way. I'm pretty amazing. I can do it. I don't need help. I have it all together. I need no one. In fact, our culture's greatest heroes are the most arrogant. 
They boast and they brag about themselves and what they can accomplish from coaches to athletes to politicians to presidents, even parents. We have said, this is what we actually love and this is what we've actually gotten. And it betrays something in our own hearts, doesn't it? It betrays this pride that we overlook in our own hearts. And if you think you don't struggle with it, then how did you respond the last time someone disagreed with you, virtually or in person? How did you respond the last time you lost something or you failed in some way or someone else got the credit that you thought that you deserved? Or perhaps no one actually ever tells you that you're wrong because you're so arrogantly unapproachable. We struggle with pride, don't we? It's that base sin that we seem to struggle so deeply with and if we don't think we do, we can just say to ourselves, well, I would never give in to that addiction of gambling, have that adulterous relationship, give in to anger that would then perhaps lead to abuse and if we ever find ourselves in that place and we've all found ourselves in that place, what Jesus is saying is you're just as easy a target as Peter because you think you can do this thing on your own power. And all the cultural narratives are saying you should be able to do all of this on your own power. Peter here would have been completely torn apart and he wasn't completely torn apart. He did falter, but he didn't fail because of one thing in this text, verse 32. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Peter, you're gonna struggle, you're gonna falter, but I, emphasis on I here in the Greek, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And Jesus lives to do this for us. In fact, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 7 will say, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Peter will falter, Peter will struggle, but I think it will become a, a, a phrase and a common refrain in his life. This will be a defining moment such that he will then later on talk about how God is able to restore you once you've struggled and once you've suffered, that then you might go strengthen the brethren. That's exactly what Jesus did with, with Peter. He prays for him that he would not fail. In John 21, he restores him and then Peter becomes what he was intended to be, but in a way that is humbly reliant upon Christ his Savior as he leads the church. How do we stand against such an enemy? We do so as we humbly rely upon Christ who lives to intercede for us, who doesn't just live to intercede for us but promised that he would not leave us as orphans and gave us his Holy Spirit that he might strengthen and sustain us. J.C. Rowell, that great Puritan, says that this actually is the one great secret of the believer's perseverance in the faith. The secret of the believer's perseverance in the faith is that Jesus lives to intercede for you and for me. And though our faith may falter, it will not fail. Praise the Lord. We need to know how to lead. We need to know how to stand. And finally, we need to know how to fight here in verses 35 through 39. Jesus has sent the disciples on missions multiple times. And typically in pairs, they've gone out to proclaim the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal and he has told them when they, every time they went, don't take a money bag, don't take a knapsack, you certainly don't need weapons because those who are people of peace, those who receive the kingdom will respond well to you and they'll take care of you. 
And something seems to be shifting here and it's tempting to read this text and say, well, Jesus is saying now, don't do that anymore, stockpile. You know, hoard up out in the wilderness, get you some money, get you some food, get you some clothing, certainly have some weapons because they're coming for you. There's a war coming and you need to get ready to fight. And in a sense, that's true. There is a war coming. They came for Christ. They're going to come for his people. In a sense, there, there is a war that is indeed coming and we must be ready to fight. But the disciples here, they hear one word of this entire conversation. Swords. Did you say swords? We've been waiting for this moment. We're ready to fight. We got two of them, two. Two swords against the Roman Empire. We're ready to roll, Jesus. We can't wait for this moment. And you can hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice here. It's enough. It's like a scene from a movie that I once watched where the guy is trying to get the girl and he likes the girl and he says, what do you think are the chances of a guy like me ending up with a girl like you? And she says, not good. And he says, like one in a thousand, not good? And she says, uh, more like one in a million. And he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> I hear you. And you can see the exasperation on her face. Jesus says, it's enough. And he's not saying, okay, two, two swords, good. That's enough. That's how we might be tempted to read it in the English. Actually, the Greek is, he's actually stopping the conversation. It's over. Whatever he might have said after this, he's not saying anymore. You know what? This conversation is not going where it needs to go. Conversation over. He's been with them three years. He is their leader, has said, I'm going to die. And all they can think of is, we got two swords and we feel pretty good about that. In a moment, Peter, like I said earlier, will cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. They're such good swordsmen. And Jesus will rebuke him for that and then heal the ear. He's not saying you need to stock up on weapons because a war's coming in that sense. No, the kingdom of God will not be advanced the way the kingdom of this world is. By force, taking territory through war and weapons of war. The kingdom of God will not be advanced the way Islam is advanced. Surrender, convert, or die. No, the kingdom of God advances through, yes, humility and death, but not the death of those that we encounter, the death of the king who saves those who look to him by faith. And perhaps the death of his followers. The blood of the martyrs, as Tertullian said, is the seed. He's saying here that what you once experienced as hospitality on your mission is now about to turn into hostility on your mission. It's happening to me, Jesus, now. And when I'm gone, it's gonna be transferred on to everyone who follows me. Hospitality will become hostility. But here's the good news. John 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The kingdom of God does expand through death but it's not the death of them it's the death of him it's not the death of them it may actually be the death of us if he sees fit for his glory and so Jesus says in verse 37 for I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment 
This is Jesus quoting the, the fourth servant song from Isaiah 52 and 53. Jesus being that suffering servant that Isaiah foresaw and God spoke about here in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I, God, will divide him, Jesus, the suffering servant, a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. His obedient death, his perfect life, his becoming sin for us has now become our salvation, has now become our righteousness and it delights God so much that Jesus was obedient even unto death that he says, I'm gonna give you the spoil for your victory. What is that spoil? Psalm 2 says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. That what Jesus gets for his perfect obedience in life and his perfect obedience in death is he gets a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, you and me and all those who are far off who will believe in him by faith. He certainly has a battle to fight. He certainly has a war to win, but it's not against these people who are arresting him. It's against the forces of hell, against sin, against Satan, against death itself. And he won't stop until he wins, until he's drank that cup all the way down to its final dregs for you and for me. And he says, you, you know what? You too actually have a battle to fight. But it's not with the weapons of this world, it's with the flesh. It's with world ideologies, it's with Satan himself. And so Paul will say, therefore you need to arm yourself up in Ephesians 6. You need to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and have your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel and you need to put on the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. You need to prepare yourselves by grounding yourself in the word of God and you need to pray that you might then stand upon the truth in a world that is filled with lies. There's a there's actually a common theme, I think, that's running through these verses and these final conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. And the theme is that we are all too easily tempted to rely upon ourselves, to rely upon our own strength. It's the struggle of pride that we talked about earlier, but it's woven throughout this entire text that when things don't go our way and when things seem hard, we think we can do it ourselves and we can depend upon ourselves that pride is the evil lying behind this conversation. Pride is what Peter dealt with. Pride is what they're wrestling over in their fight. Pride is why they missed the whole conversation and grabbed for swords because they think they can do this on their own strength. Pride is the thing that Jesus has zero of. He's lowly and gentle. He's so humble that he considered equality with God not a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself by becoming a man, by becoming a servant, by going to the cross, by dying an excruciating and humiliating death for you and for me. And we think that we're going to lead and we're going to stand and we're going to fight to the end by our own intellect, by our own gifts, by our own great winsomeness to the world. And Jesus says, you know what? That's a recipe for disaster. You'll be torn to pieces. The only way you stand 
is if you stand in humble reliance upon Christ. And that's why St. Augustine, that great theologian, would say, what is the chief virtue of Christianity? It's number one, humility. It's number two, humility. It's number three, humility. That if we wanna be those who stand and lead and fight to the end, we need to be those who humbly rely upon Christ, who even now is at the right end of the Father in glory, in victory, in praying for us, and one day will come back for us. That's how you'll endure the hostility. That's how you'll serve God's people. That's how you'll fight against evil in your own life and in the world. And that's how you'll be more like your Savior. And that actually is the key to true greatness. Let's pray. Gracious God and most holy Heavenly Father, we, we do come to you as those who are so brazenly proud and we think we can do this life on our own. We ask that you would forgive us and that you would strengthen us afresh. You who did not leave us as orphans but sent your son's spirit, would you now strengthen and equip us with that same spirit? Help us to humbly rely upon Christ, his finished work, his enabling grace, the hope of glory that we will be with him forever, that we might be those who lead by serving, who stand in dependence upon you, and who fight, Lord, against evil in this world by dying, by suffering, by serving every day for your glory in Christ's name, amen.